A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Two Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode is sponsored in honor of the Heyman family, in honor of their son Michael Heyman's Bar Mitzvah, sponsored by their close friends from Alotafna. And this is a reminder uh, to any opportunity for sponsorships to be in touch with me, all kinds, um, for families, for simchas, for yard sites, for businesses or the like, so um, you can be in touch with me about that. Um, before I start today's, I just wanted to mention in the context of the YU book sales forum sale that's still continuing to go on, and most people have been to already and have come back with some great stuff, but um, if you haven't, then you still can go. It's still going on, and they're still replenishing the stock of all the sellouts, um, but um, we put on the Jewish History Soundbites Twitter something that went totally wild, um, way beyond uh, um, what I expected it to. Uh, the suggestion actually came from a listener about asking about what your favorite Jewish history book um, that you read that's not famous. Uh, the famous ones... Hopefully we've all read. If you haven't, then go read all the famous ones. And if you're listening to Jewish History Soundbites, then you know, you're already, uh, already on the right track. So we wanted to know what are some of the Jewish history books that are not so famous, that, that, that are your favorite ones that perhaps people should know more about. And it really generated an amazing discussion. And I'll be honest, I was amazed by the responses. Um, way, 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 way beyond uh, what I ever imagined. That we have some pretty incredible people out there. There was books that I never even heard of, let alone read. And there was a lot of fun. Um, and um, and um, we'll talk about some of those books at the end. So stick around to the end of tonight's um, episode, and we'll talk about some of the books that I just happened to pick out. There's quite a few suggestions. Uh, I'm going to just uh, talk about a few of them. We'll do that at the end. Today we're going to talk a little bit about um, the Jewish Mafia in the United States in the early 1900s, which is a, an amazing phenomenon 
of Jewish history. Not only is it fun and interesting and fascinating and great stories, but it also is an insight into the immigrant generation that moved during the great waves of immigration. And it really is a microcosm of the challenges of integration in both the Jewish sense, um, in both integrating into American life, into the acculturation, and really has a lot to say about Jewish identity um, at this crossroads. And through the story of the mafia, the, of the mobsters, the Jewish mob, we can really gain an insight into the, to a certain extent, the crisis or the challenges of Jewish identity at the turn of the century and the, the first half of the 20th century. So we'll start off with a story. We have an encounter that takes place on the streets of the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the area that borders between the Jewish neighborhoods of the Lower East Side and and the um, and Little Italy, which is not far from there, where a lot of the Italian immigrants moved to. And there had been, a few years before, there was a nine-year-old immigrant who came in 1911 from the city of Grudna, then in the Russian Empire, a city in Poland, today in Belarus, a famous city. And this nine-year-old boy had moved to the new country because of the pogroms that had been prevalent in the Russian Empire at the time he himself had witnessed as a child uh, Jews getting beaten up in the streets of Grodna. And they came, his family, his mother, his parents, brought him to America, him and his siblings, to start a new life. A few years later, he's walking as a young teenager on the streets of Manhattan, and he's soon surrounded by a group of Italian teenagers who are just about his age, a drop older, and they try to shake him down for some protection money. And he looks at them in the eye, and he's not scared, and he doesn't back down. And he fights his way out of it. He's pretty defiant. And the leader of the Italian group, Charlie, he's impressed by that. Instead of beating the kid up, he calls off the attack and they decide to become friends. And this Charlie Luciano, who later on in life is known as Lucky Luciano, he makes his friend, becomes one of his closest friends throughout his life. And that little Jewish boy was Meyer Lansky, who later became one of the most legendary figures of the Jewish mafia. And that, 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 that friendship that was cemented in, in the toughness displayed by Lansky already as a child, already as a young teenager, was what um, what really came out of not only of Lansky himself as one of the biggest bosses in mafia history, but also in as an expression of, of what the uh, Jewish mafia to a certain extent represented as tough Jews, as Jews who would not back down, and they would fight on the streets uh, of New York and other cities to uh, to 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 face the challenges of life and uh, and try to make something of themselves in those circumstances. Now, interestingly enough, the architect of of the of organized crime in America is 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 already a different type of Jew, and he's even the mentor of many of the Italian mafioso. He was a fellow by the name of Arnold Rothstein, who was not a first-generation immigrant from Eastern Europe. He came from a German-Jewish family on Manhattan's Upper West Side, and a comfortable family, and he was a rebel. And he um, later rose to fame as one of the biggest bootleggers during Prohibition, what really created the National Crime Syndicate 
or the modern mafia as it's known, uh, both the Jewish and the Italian, and to a certain extent the Irish gangs also, was prohibition. In 1920, the Volstead Act is passed by Congress, it becomes the 18th Amendment, and which pro- pro- the prohibition to um, produce and, and market and sell alcohol. And the bootlegging and speakeasies where illegal alcohol was sold and bought and dealt became became a, a major underworld criminal activity. And um, eventually they moved into gambling, they moved into other types of crime and all types of, uh, you know, protection rackets and controlling the garment industry and the longshoremen and the docks and all kinds of industries. They tried to take over um, uh, different concessions throughout throughout the city. And it's not only in New York, it's in Newark, New Jersey, it's in Chicago, Detroit and L.A. and uh, it's all over the country. But um, but Rothstein is the one who organized it. He's the architect of it. He's the visionary. He believed that it could be run like a professional business. He could utilize the rules and the game of capitalism in the United States to create a professional uh, crime syndicate, a professional underworld. And he, in fact, there's rumors till today. It has never been verified. There's, uh, you know, all types of um, discussions and even scholarly work written, believe it or not, about whether he was involved in the infamous 1919 Black Sox scandal of the World Series, which just recently was its centennial, the 100th anniversary. This past World Series was the 100th anniversary of the Black Sox scandal. And it was actually around now that the indictment was uh, given to the eight players on the Black Sox. It was known as the Black Sox, the Chicago White Sox, but they became known as the Black Sox scandal because they... They uh, allegedly threw the series to the Cincinnati Reds. Um, and Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was one of the greatest uh, hitters in baseball history, was one of the ones indicted, even though in all probability he was not actually one of the, one of the players who negotiated with the gamblers with the, or the mob, Rothstein's people, according to that version. Um, Shoeless Joe Jackson was barely literate. And uh, it's, it was a bit, he was treated a bit unfairly, um, especially given his numbers. If it, his numbers in the series were not all that bad. And uh, he, but he was implicated in the scandal as well. Um, and of course, the famous uh, um, journalistic, uh, they made it up. It was a, a headline that was, Say It Ain't So Joe, that's supposedly a little child seeing uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson come out of the grand jury hearing, and he he looks up at his hero and says, Say it ain't so, Joe. And say it, Joe, Shoeless Joe is unable to answer this little fan of his, but the story never happened. It was made up by a journalist. So the, the you know, and, and baseball changes after that. They bring in Kennesaw Mountain Landis to become the, the first commissioner of baseball. And you also have to understand the context of baseball at the time, of the, the owners kind of ruled the players. We look at the players today as people who make these multi-million dollar contracts and salaries. It was not the case um, in in the early 1900s. In fact, the getting to the World Series and getting the World Series bonus sometimes meant the difference between um, a family of the baseball player having ends meet that year. And very often the owners would try to get out of giving the World Series bonus to their players, even to star players. And the owners really were pretty cruel there was no union for the players then, and as crazy as it sounds, but it was it was harsh financial conditions, 
And that's what brought these players to actually uh, go sell out to the gamblers. And and Landis was brought in, who was a former federal judge and a baseball fan, was brought in by the owners to maintain law and order. And even though they were never convicted in a regular court, but Landis banned the Chicago Black Sox players for life. And till today, Shoeless Joe Jackson cannot be in the Hall of Fame. But what what the the connection to the mafia is is that Rothstein is supposed supposedly was the one behind the whole thing, in that he, as this Jewish mobster from New York, he's the one who had his men contact the um, the players on the White Sox and have them sell out, and supposedly he made a few hundred thousand dollars, which in nineteen nineteen is a fortune of money on the deal. Um, so, so that was, that was, that's that, that's that, what another role that he plays. Um, but it's really during the years of Prohibition, 1920s, uh, Prohibition is last from 1920 to 1933. It's one of the first things that's repealed by FDR when he becomes president, which is, I guess, one of the reasons that Jews loved him. You know, you're allowed to drink alcohol again. By the way, sacramental, uh, um, production of alcohol was legal. So they were able to make wine for Kiddush. And of course, that loophole, was um was utilized by Jews all over New York, rabbis giving licenses to sacramental wine production and they got a cut on the selling the wine and you know there's a lot of stories in in that regard as well. But that's a story about prohibition. Um and uh so Rothstein in nineteen twenty eight, um after he refused to pay up a gambling debt because he felt that the game was fixed so someone was out to get him. He's standing on his steps uh, to one of, one of the, to the, I think the Park Central Hotel, somewhere in the west side of Manhattan. And he is shot and he stumbles. The assassin gets away. The police come. They say he's still conscious as he's being taken to the hospital. The police ask him, did you recognize your killer? Can you tell us anything about him? And being the tough mobster that he is, Rothstein tells them, I'll stick to my business, you stick to yours. And he refuses to cooperate with the police, even in regards to his own assassins. He dies two days later. And his father, you know, they come from a, he comes from a very chash of a mishpacha. He comes from a prominent family on Manhattan's west side, an orthodox family. His brother was a rabbi. And his father was the president of the Manhattan Jewish Center, where Rabbi Leo Jung, the legendary rabbi, was the uh, rav. So his Levaya, his funeral goes from the Manhattan Jewish Center, and Nerve Young has to give a hespit on this mobster. And uh, he doesn't really know what to say about him. So he speaks about the family and the charitable acts of the family and the kindness and kind of in very general terms and avoids speaking more specifically about this young man who was killed. But he then he's go then they go ahead and bury him in Union Field Cemetery. And if you go today to RJJ, Rabbeinu Yaakov Yasef, the chief rabbi of New York City, Arnold Rothstein is right down, literally 30 seconds from his kever, um, the architect of the modern mafia. So he's taken over by what develops into the, after the Castellamarese, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong because it's Italian, uh, after the Castellamarese wars, that Luciano takes over the modern mafia, and together with Lansky and Frank Costello, Bugsy Siegel, Dutch Schultz, Jews and Italians, they're working together. They produce the the new mafia. Now, we want to ask, um, 
what is the role of Jews in the mafia? Are they villains? They're criminals, right? Many of them, you know, just engaged in making illegal gambling places or bootlegging liquor. The minor crimes, then it gets to theft. And very often with certain mafia mobsters, it gets to even murder. So they're not, they're not exactly the biggest tzaddikim out there. Um, and yet, in many ways, the Jewish community sees them as heroes. And in certain ways, they've even been romanticized, especially the ones that that were sent up the river to Sing Sing prison and died on old Sparky at the electric chair. Um, so they died young as like kind of like martyrs for the Jewish community. So what what is it? How is it that they're, what's this? It's, it's an, an interesting paradox of how they're viewed. And it's because they themselves lived the double life. On one hand, they were part of the Jewish community, and they supported the community. They also had money during the Depression, and they, would, they made sure to keep very good relationship with the locals. Harry Strauss, who was arguably one of the greatest murderers in Mafia history, as one of the, uh, the, the big contract killers for Murder Incorporated, the Jewish, also Italian, Italian and Jewish um, um, uh, group, that the media nicknamed Murder Incorporated, but they were an outsourcing uh, group. They weren't part of any of the crime families, but they were. They did. They did contract killing. If the mob needed someone to take care of, uh, someone to be bumped off or hit, then they would hire. They would hire one of the. You know, Murder Incorporated. They would give them. They would give them. They, they were based out of Brownsville in Brooklyn. My mother was born in Brownsville. My uncle used to tell me about. How I remembered the candy store. Uh, where, where it was a legendary candy store that was like the headquarters of Murder Incorporated, which they had been they were gone by the 1950s, but he still talked about it as if it was it was still part of the neighborhood. Now, Harry Strauss, who's eventually convicted and sent to the electric chair uh, for all his all his crimes, he was one of the only people in in the Jewish parts of Brownsville that had a nice car during the Depression. And any Jewish mother who was needed to give birth, he was called and he would drive her to the hospital. And he did it happily. And it was his one of his things that he contributed to the community. You know, the boss of one of the crime families and the boss, the nominal boss of Murder Incorporated was another Jew named Lepke Buchhalter, Louis Lepke Buchhalter who originally came from Brownsville, but now lived in Manhattan. And he used to come back to the old neighborhood for all kinds of meetings and also to visit his family. And Meyer Birnbaum, who later became famous as Lieutenant Birnbaum, who grew up in East New York, which borders on Brownsville, he used to do shoe shining as a child. He came from a poor family, so he would try to do odd jobs as a child. And he used to do shoe shining at the train station. And he said he remembers, he remembers shining the shoes of Lepke. The, the big mafia boss, when he would come back to town to visit his family. And Lepke, he loved shining Lepke's shoes because he was so nice to him. And he would give him a dollar tip during the Depression to an 11-year-old child. A dollar tip to a poor kid uh, during the Great Depression was the equivalent of making a week's salary. And um, so they, they maintained good relations with the community. Many of them, they kept uh, traditional lives. They they um you know they 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 didn't they didn't kill people randomly you know the people who they killed or 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 stole from wherever it was they they were careful who they did it to who they crossed paths with they didn't do it to federal agents that's eventually why the mob had a bump off dutch schultz uh 
Dutch Schultz was the nickname given to Arthur Flegenheimer, who was a mob boss, a Jewish mob boss, obviously. You can't uh, be Italian with a name Flegenheimer. And um, in 1935, Thomas Dewey, who was the Attorney General in New York, um, he was going after the mob. And Schultz, at a meeting of the syndicate, he, he, he said, we have to bump off uh, Dewey. And the mob did not give him permission. So Lansky and the others gave the order to hit Schultz. So Charles Workman and a couple other mobsters went down to uh, Newark, New Jersey, and they got him in a restaurant and they bumped him off. So you didn't mess with federal agents. You didn't, you didn't mess with people in the community. You, you did it, you, it, it stuck in the business. So you had this amazing paradox where you have, where you have, um, Jewish mobsters who on one hand, um, they're engaged in all kinds of crime. They're, you know, uh, they're gambling and bootlegging during the Depression and then theft and then outright murder, especially the members of Murder Incorporated. That's their job. They're contract killers. On the other hand, they're close with their family, their mothers. They have a somewhat of a traditional Jewish life. There was, there was another Jewish mob in Detroit called the Purple Gang. And in fact, a, pur- a bunch of Purple Gang members were in shul on Yom Kippur. They went to shul, and there was some FBI agents who were shadowing them. But the FBI agents, though they dressed up as Jews davening in shul on Yom Kippur, they didn't know that you don't smoke on Yom Kippur. So they lit up their cigarettes, thus exposing themselves. And the gangsters of the Purple Gang were able to get away. So, you know, coming to shul to daven on Yom Kippur saved their, uh, saved their lives for the meantime. But you also had a guy like Sam Levine, who was known as Red Levine. And most members of Murder Incorporated eventually went to the chair. Um, some of them were turncoats. Abe Reilly's, who was, who was notorious, he also uh, he switched sides. He became an agent for, for the feds and testified for them against all his former friends until the mob bumped him off while he was in prison under police custody. He was found dead outside his uh, two, you know, two floors down outside the window where he was, he was being kept. And the newspaper headlines the next day are, The Canary Can Sing, But He Can't Fly. But the story of Abe Reilly's is an interesting one. Hopefully we'll get to it in a part two or three or four of this about the Jewish mafia. But Sam Levine, who was known as Red Levine, he was one of the only members of Murder Incorporated who never was arrested and never went to jail, and was not killed on the chair. He was uh, he lived out his life, died in the 1970s, quietly, and not much is known about his later years. Sam Levine was an Orthodox Jew. He led an Orthodox lifestyle. He wore a yarmulke under his hat. He ate kosher food. He put on tefillin every day. He kept Shabbos. Not only that, but he would not carry out a murder on Shabbos. You don't murder on Shabbos. You know, I guess... You know, murdering was his job, and you don't work on Shabbos. That's that's part of that's part of what it is. And um, so, but if he had to, you know, Shasadchak, if you had to, it's America after all. You have to sometimes work on Shabbos. So he would wear a talis to remember that it's Shabbos, and this way it would keep him in line. But there are other ones where really Strauss, Bugsy Goldstein, Mendy Weiss, other members of the mob. 
they would go to a Friday night dinner, be by their parents, Shabbos, you know, not no 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 do you know you have to have the Shabbos suda, and then afterwards they'll go out on an excursion and take care of business as well. Um, so even if they weren't makped not to murder on Shabbos itself, but they would at least do it after the suda and not disturb it uh, with with that. So you had um, this this paradox again, uh, leaving leading a someone you know all all of them would give a breast to their kids. There's a whole uh, description of a, a lot of uh, Jewish mobsters gathering by Charles Workman, his child's bris. You know, they all getting together for the party. Um, and uh, many of them, you know, Meyer Lansky was in Israel for you know, a short period of time in the 70s. He also died a, a, a civilian death in 1983 in Florida after he retired and moved down to Florida. In his later years, he told other Jewish mobsters that uh, Miami Beach is the true promised land. But he also spent time in Israel, and someone who spent the Shabbos with him in Tel Aviv, so he said to him, that Lansky says to him in the middle of the Suda, he says to him, look around, you hear the singing? They're singing the Jewish songs for Shabbos. He said, I miss that. I remember hearing that as a child, and I miss that which is an interesting thing also. So they have this Jewish identity. On the other hand, they, they unlike the Italians, very often it didn't, the, the, the mafia, the mobster job, the gangster job, did not continue into the next generation. Uh, Lansky himself, his son Paul Lansky, went to, went to West Point, like the ultimate American uh, expression. And when Paul Lansky's child was born, he named his, his son Meyer Lansky II. And Lansky says to him, why do you have to do that to your child? Why should he be embarrassed by carrying such a name? In other words, there's this dichotomy, there's this uh, confusion in their own life about what their true identity is and where they stand and what they're doing with, uh, with this uh, career, so to speak, of theirs. Now, there's a lot more to say, so hopefully we'll have a part two, probably a part three or four of stories about the Jewish Mafia. We just scratched the surface. I want to use a couple of minutes here at the end to talk about a few of the books that were in that incredible thread that we had on Twitter about um, Jewish history books, your favorite Jewish history books that are not famous. Um, So I myself uh, submitted my proposal at some point. uh, I thought it was a great book. I, most people I've spoken to n- never heard of it, or at least never have read it, so I thought I'd put it out there. Uh, a, a book called The Pity of It All by Amos Alone, which was about uh, the story of German Jewry and their struggle for emancipation and their uh, you know, acculturation and assimilation into German life and culture from the 1700s, the time of Moses Mendelssohn, up until the rise of Hitler to power, where there was this disillusionment with the emancipation. That was my suggestion. There was someone who brought up Jerome Mintz's uh, book about Hasidic people, called Hasidic People, about Hasidim, especially in the United States. Great book. Also, and I love the ones who who recommended old books. Those are great. Um, the Shabzai Tzvi and the Messianic Movement of His Generation by Gershom Shalom, which is an all-time classic I think it's still in print even, um, the ultimate book about Shabzai Tzvi, even after, maybe after uh, Professor Lyman has written quite a bit about it also in recent years, 
But even after everything Professor Lyman has written and others have written, still Shalom's book is a is an all time classic. Um, and there's the and someone wrote, also brought up Dubnov, Shimon Dubnov's books. But I don't even know if they're in print anywhere. Maybe they are, but they're every anything Dubnov ever wrote is of course relevant still. Someone wrote Leon Uris's novel Exodus, which is you know a, a good book. Uh, a novel, so you know, it has some sort of basis in reality, but the story of the actual Exodus was a little different. One of the ones I liked was a book called Red Sea Spies about the Mossad's bringing Ethiopian Jewry over to Israel. And one of the reasons I liked there's quite a few books that I had never heard of, and even a few that I'd heard of that I'd never read. Most of the books, I would say, even. I either never heard of or didn't read. So I was amazingly impressed by the diversity, by the depth, by the knowledge, and, and I was greatly enriched by the suggestions and recommendations there. And and this is a great example, Red Sea Spies, about Ethiopian Jewry coming over to Israel. I never read it. I don't think I heard of the book, and it sounds very interesting. And of course, anything about Ethiopian Jewry is usually overlooked, not enough written about, not enough spoken about. I've never given any podcasts on it. Um, so it's a good topic. Someone suggested Yitzchak Arad's The Partisan. And of course, it's about his experiences. Uh, Yitzchak Arad, who I know personally, he's still alive. He's in his 90s now. I met him. I schmoozed with him. He's an amazing person. Anything written by Yitzchak Arad is fantastic. Um, and his experiences as a partisan were fascinating in... Uh, the forests of Lithuania, an amazing person in general, and he's quite a scholar, written quite a quite a number of books uh, that are great. Um, someone brought up Louis Jacobs's autobiography, which also I was not unaware of. Someone who is the head of the conservative movement and in conservative Judaism in England, who had learned by Rav Dessler, it's definitely going to be an enlightening uh, autobiography. Um, and definitely, first prize, the best response we got on the entire thread was someone said, Tanakh is a great book that has a lot of history and no one ever, and it's not famous at all, no one reads it, which I thought was an amazing response. So we can go for some Tanakh uh, as well. So I really enjoyed it, and um, hopefully we'll think of uh, other ideas, but you can also suggest, uh, as I said, last suggestion came not from me, came from a listener. So the next one could as well. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips of places of interest in Jewish history. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.